Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Anthony Magnabosco about talking with believers. Anthony Magnabosco is a blogger, writer, and street epistemologist. I asked him about his religious background and how he got started in reaching out to the religious. I was raised in a Catholic family, a Christian community, more Catholic. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess Catholic is a subset of Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Catholic environment. I went to Catholic grade school uh, all throughout my childhood. My family, we went to all the different masses and the services and prayed to the saints and crosses on the wall and Palm Sunday and ashes on the forehead and all this stuff. But I, it didn't take, like, I, I distinctly remember being a young kid and doubting it and thinking, I don't, I really don't think that this is real. I think it's made up. So I largely just went through the motions. Uh, there were a lot of Sundays that I pretended to be sick so that I could avoid going to the mass, but mm-hmm. yeah, I just didn't really believe it. And I think my parents picked up on it and they didn't force me really to do anything with it. But um, I guess I was always just a doubting person, very skeptical, uh, even as a kid. So it didn't really cause much friction with your family that you were kind of going towards this path of of non-belief and they were believers? Mm, That's a good question. I think it did create some friction. I, I am the oldest of four. Uh, of course, siblings tend to look up to the oldest. So I think my parents were a little concerned about that. Um, I had a grandfather that was very, I think he was more alarmed about it or maybe a little perplexed that my parents weren't taking it so seriously, like my perceived lack of a belief in their God. So um, I, yeah, I think there was a little bit of friction. They may have done a better job of keeping it away from me than maybe I, I, I remember but yeah, I, it was just one of those things where we didn't talk about it too much, but there were, there were things that came up. Like <laughs> when I was in eighth grade, when you get, when you're in eighth grade or seventh grade, you go through a confirmation process where the church basically feels like you're old enough to make your own decision, to make a statement of faith. Mm-hmm. And, and we went through all these classes, like week long classes of this confirmation. And I remember they were extremely clear, Anthony and, and the other students, if you don't believe that this is true, you need to tell us so that you don't go through the confirmation process. So I went home to my parents and I said, they're, they're telling me that I, you know, that we shouldn't go through this ceremony if we don't believe. And I don't believe. And my parents, I think at the time said something like, well, just fake it, just go through it. Because if you don't go through the ceremony, then you, you can't get married in the church. So I think they were just I think they were just alarmed at my lack of a belief, but maybe thought it was just a phase that I would grow out of. Mm-hmm. So I and I, I don't harbor any ill will towards them. I, I I don't think that this is true anyway. So it's it's not as if I'm upset that they forced me to go through some the ceremony or make these statements because it was important to them. They really believed it and they wanted me to believe it and they cared about me. And you mentioned one of the things that really uh, made you think more about these issues was having kids. How did that affect how you saw um, your belief system or lack Mm. of belief system, I should Mm -hmm. say? Yeah. Well, as your kids get older, they start talking and they start asking questions and you start thinking, well, what school do I want them to go to? What 
what beliefs do I want them exposed to? And you start asking, you know, what's important to me? What, what do I want my kids to, to be influenced by? So, you know, we started looking around at this, at this time I was actually working, I wasn't a stay at home dad at that time. Um, and we needed a daycare. So we looked all over town and the best one in town was a Jewish, uh, it's, it's, it's a daycare at a Jewish community center. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, what the heck? Let's, let's just go ahead and do that. Um, but then as I was driving my kids home one day, <laughs> it's a funny story. Uh, when my son who, who was just speaking said something along the lines of, I was driving home and he was like, uh, daddy, I'm Jewish. <laughs> I, was, I was like, well, what? I turned, I got conversing with him in the rear view mirror. It's like, yeah, daddy, I'm Jewish. I'm like, well, no, we're not really Jewish. You're just going to a Jewish school. And it's like, no, daddy, I'm Jewish. And he was like three or four years old at the time. Stuff like that just really drives home that these beliefs that we're forming are not necessarily because we think that they're true, but because we're being told that they are. Mm-hmm. And all of this was just a confluence of events that led me to think that I've got to do something. How can I use my time to help other people with these with these beliefs, with these things that were being told that may not actually be true and seem to be causing harm. And that's when you found Peter Bergosian's book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I stumbled across his book. It's uh, going on five years now. And I read it and I thought, hey, if, if this is a better way of talking to a believer that doesn't cause the conversation to get heated, or even worse, uh, cause the person that you're talking to to become even more convinced that what they're telling you is true, okay? Uh, then I have to give it a try. And that's what I did. I, I, I literally strapped on a GoPro and I went to uh, downtown here in my city in San Antonio mm-hmm. and I started just striking up conversations with people trying to implement some of the things that he talked about in his book. Did you have that kind of personality already? Were you comfortable just going up to random people on the street or did you have to kind of psych yourself up to do that? Man, that's a good question. Back then I was very nervous, very uh, anxious. Um, no, it's not in my nature to ne- to really do that. Uh Mm-hmm. It was definitely, it was definitely stepping outside of my comfort zone, definitely to do that. Uh, and I had seen a lot of videos online beforehand of atheists arguing with believers. And I had been watching shows like the atheist experience and I felt competent enough to have discussions with people and to be able to defend my atheism. But when you're using street epistemology, what I didn't realize at the time is that it's not about you. It's about them. So that actually t- took a lot of the pressure off. When I, when I started realizing that, hey, I don't need to know the Quran. I don't need to be walking up to them with, my, with a Bible in hand so that I can debate with them. So in a way, it, uh, it, made, it, com- it made it a lot easier because it took the pressure off. Because it really wasn't about my competency with the topic, but just simply learning the types of questions that I should be asking. I'm sure many people might not know what street epistemology is or have heard of Peter Bogosian's 
manual for creating atheists, but can you give us a description of, of what is the thesis of his book and what is street epistemology? Sure. Well, the general thesis of his book is that uh, people typically hold beliefs and are unwilling to change them if you provide them with evidence that shows that they're mistaken. They will more than likely double down on their belief. But if you approach people by asking them questions, using Socratic questions generally, to uncover the reliability of the method that they use to form the belief, that is an effective way to help a person slow down and contemplate on that belief. And even in a short conversation, five or 10 minutes, and he includes all these little examples in his book, is enough to help a person slow down and think about their belief and possibly even doubt their belief. So street epistemology is largely about having a dialogue with a person where you're leaving them with a pebble in their shoe so that they ultimately go out to address it and, or possibly just take the shoe off, get, you know, get rid of the belief outright. Um, it's a very humbling thing. You start to realize how many people are holding beliefs that are based on faulty methods. Uh, that's another big uh, idea in Bogosian's book is that he sees faith as an epistemology, that faith is a method that people are using to say that they believe or know something. Now, a lot of apologists lately have been saying, well, we don't use faith in that way, but I've had a thousand conversations with believers. And when I ask them how they determine that their God is real, for example, and street epistemology does not have to be about God, it could be about any topic, but the reason that most believers give after you peel back the first or second or third reason that they give you, that turns out that's not the reason. It's almost always coming down to faith, that faith is the way that they're coming to know the things that they claim to know. So before you actually strapped on that GoPro and went out to downtown San Antonio to talk to random people on the street, did you try out these methods with people you knew or your family members, your your son who said he was Jewish, for example? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember trying it out other than putting on the camera and starting to talk to people. I really don't. I may have had one or two conversations with people over social media, you know, text-based or maybe over over. Twitter or something mm -hmm. where I may have experimented with it, but I can't, I don't even remember if it dawned on me that I could do it other than a face to face type of situation. Uh, there were no examples as far as I'm aware of at the time where people were posting videos or, or, or really sharing too much online. So other than the examples in Bogosian's book, there really weren't too many things to go off of. So no, I think I really do think the first time I tried it was when I recorded it and asked people to stop and talk. And and uh, they're not pretty. The examples are not pretty. Uh, I was still in that debating mode, I guess you could say, and not in the questioning mode. So it really took a long time to finally, finally uh, come to grips with the the, the concepts and and start putting them into practice. So even though a lot of it is simply asking questions, you know, you mentioned the Socratic method, um, it took you a while to actually get that down? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you would think it would just be easy. But when you hear somebody say that atheists cannot be moral, 
and they would make horrible they would make horrible parents because they don't understand what true love is or something i mean that is raw meat to an atheist especially one that might be going through you know like that angry atheist sort of phase mm-hmm. and falling for that or getting wrapped up into the emotion that might come with what they're saying can be very detrimental to a conversation if you're trying to use street epistemology. So it takes a lot of discipline to hear things that you, they're triggers and, and, or, you know, you, you easily know the counter apologetic. If somebody mentions Pascal's wager, for example, you know, we watched enough exper- uh, enough shows and enough examples and debates where we can competently argue against that. But if that's not why the person really thinks their God is real, it's a waste of time. So it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of practice to ignore those detours, those potential detours, those potential pitfalls, and stay focused on the reliability of the method that they're using. So you've been doing this for five years now, over five years. What have been some of the most memorable conversations you've had with people? Mm, I've had some highs and lows. Uh, The highs, I guess, would be situations where people have reached out to me later to say, Anthony, thank you so much for that talk. It's changed the way that I view things. It's changed my entire outlook. I can no longer hold that belief. You've helped me discard a belief that is probably not true and my life is better for it. So that's extremely rewarding. I I post these examples. I post these examples on YouTube and I'll have people that watch the videos and are still moved to those types of responses, Uh, whether they're um, whether they're a theist at the time and they're watching it and it helps them reflect on their own beliefs, or they're an atheist who sees how effective that this approach is compared to arguing with a person. And they say, this has completely changed the way that I engage with believers now. So thank you so much for showing me a different way, possibly a better way. And then there are some lows too, where, oh, let's say I started off, you know, when I started learning the technique, I was very poor at it. Um, I had a follow-up conversation. I'm writing a blog post about this. I'm going to mention it, but I had a follow-up conversation with somebody that I met almost two years ago and she wanted to meet, but she didn't want her identity exposed. So we were talking about all these different ways that we can come up with to hide her identity because she thought that disclosing where she was now on her God belief would break her mom's heart. So we went through all these gyrations and we, we basically had sort of a, a email type of interview going on only to discover that her big reveal was that she thinks everybody's truth matters. Everybody can have their own truth and it's okay if somebody believes in Allah or doesn't believe in a God or believes in Jesus that really everyone has their own truth. So that was a, that was a little disheartening and I think it's something that I probably wouldn't have discovered if I was better at the technique when I had first met her two years ago. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes those are, those situations can be quite humbling. So how has having these conversations changed your view of believers? Mm. That's a very good question because it has changed the way that I view believers. Oh, well, 
One thing that hasn't changed is that I'm pretty good at separating, and I always have been pretty good at separating the belief from the person. Mm-hmm. So I think I've always been pretty decent at at focusing on the belief. But it didn't dawn on me until fairly recently, and largely because of all these conversations that I've had with people, that believers, I think, are victims of a faulty methodology. They're victims of a faulty epistemology. They're victims of a faulty way of coming to believe the things that they've come to believe. So I've I've really I really have uh, sympathy and empathy for people who are holding these beliefs. I don't think that they're stupid. I don't think that there's anything wrong with them. Uh, this is a human thing. This is something that human brains tend to do. And my brain is really no different. I'm completely capable of thinking that I know something to be true. I have a strong confidence that it's true and be way, way off base. Uh, so yeah, um, I see, I see people, I mean, whether you believe a God exists or you think karma is real, or you think that you have a soul or that you've seen a ghost or whatever your political views are, any belief that you hold I've learned is and should be subject to questioning gentle, respectful questioning. And uh, I hope that people use this method on me, actually, on my beliefs. Have people used this method on you? Yeah. I have people contacting me all the time uh, that say, you said this in your video, and how did you come to determine that? So, like, sometimes in, in a conversation with somebody, I'll say, yeah, I can tell that you were interested in the talk because, you know, and I'm like, well, wait a second. I really couldn't tell that they were interested. It seemed that that was the case. So there are people that catch me on the things that I'll say, and then they want to engage with me. Or they may say, hey, Anthony, what are your views on gun control? Would you be interested in having a talk? You know, Usually it's over Twitter or Facebook Messenger or something. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, absolutely, sure. So I've had some really good talks with people where my view, I had a view that it was harmful to the artist to download their music for free. And I had a Facebook Messenger chat with somebody three years ago. I wish I remember who he was. And my views changed on it. Uh, By him asking me questions, I realized that I really didn't have a good leg to stand on, so I became softer on that view. So even though you're an atheist yourself, doing street epistemology, has it changed your views of fellow atheists or the atheist movement or the approaches that we take in terms of combating harmful religious ideologies? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I, I do think that there's a place for all the different methods, whether it's Dawkins debating a Christ, uh, creationist and just crushing them, or it's you know watching a Hitchens video or a Matt Dillahunty on the atheist experience. These are all approaches that have their place. Mm-hmm. There are a countless number of people that have had their views changed because they've observed that. But one thing that I've, that seems to be the key difference here is the venue in which you're using those approaches. So if I was going to sit down with my aunt, who is a young earth creationist, I probably wouldn't use the Dawkins approach that he would use in a debate. I would more than likely use street epistemology because in a one-on-one approach, the SE approach, I think, seems to be better, where you're listening, you're repeating back, you're questioning, you're peeling back the layers to fully understand what they believe. 
that seems to be much more effective. But if somebody's passively watching R and Ra in a video, that could be extremely effective if he's challenging a belief that the viewer also has. A few months ago, somebody was surprised that I was friends with Matt Dillahunty because we have such different approaches. And I thought that was weird that they'd be surprised because, mm. like you said, that is odd. We don't all need to use one approach. We can use different approaches and appreciate the other approaches that others use. It's not a one-size-fits-all model. Yeah, that, that is interesting. No, I, I'm, I'm taken aback at how supportive people in the atheist community seem to be with each other. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, David McAfee recently wrote a book with a similar title to Seth Andrews. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that might make some people angry, but Seth, just the other day, made a tweet promoting the guy's book. I saw that, yeah. Did you see that? Uh -huh. like, yeah. That is, just, that is just one example of, of things that I see all the time. So there's a lot of support. And one thing that I like is, is that I see atheists uh, taking things from other people and making it their own and making it better. So I, I noticed a debate where David Silverman was debating a Christian on a stage being recorded, 500 people in the audience, 50,000 viewers on YouTube eventually, right? And he was using Socratic questions during his debate with his opponent. And I don't think I've ever seen a person do that before. And I don't know what specifically influenced Silverman to do that. I, I would like to think it's some of the SE content that's out there. I don't know for sure. But that is exciting to me. That is exciting to see people in the various shades of the movement, you know, the whether you want to go firebrand or you want to go go diplomat. And we can talk about those terms if you want. Uh, it's, sure. It's can you define those for people who might not know what we're talking about? Sure, sure. So uh, somebody might describe firebrand as an in-your-face, let me tell you how wrong you are and let me tell you how right I am. And other people might describe diplomat as, let's sit down and have a cordial conversation as to why you think that this is the case. However, not everyone agrees on that definition. In fact, I think Silverman would probably say that what a street epistemologist does is firebrand. Even though I would never raise my voice, even though we're shaking our hand, shaking hands at the end, even though we're thanking each other for the conversation, I think he would say that that is firebrand because we're doing something, we're giving a shit. Like we're we're not just letting the claim go and nodding our head and saying thank you, that's very nice, thank you for praying for me. Mm -hmm. We're pushing back a little bit. So I'm I'm struggling a little bit to define what those terms mean, only because it seems like it's very gray. Uh, the word firebrand can actually incorporate my definition of diplomat, depending on who you are. You can be more diplomatic in one context and more firebrand in another. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not like you have to pick sides. And that's the weird thing. I think some people think you have to choose one or the other and then use right. that technique in every situation you find yourself in. Right, right. And that's that's what I hope that's what's been that's what's become more clear to me is that these are tools at our disposal depending on the situation. So there may be a time like if I, if I'm in front of the Alamo and there's a street preacher but there's 50 people watching the engagement it might be in my best interest to provide that street preacher 
with the typical counter-apologetics that most atheists have come to know and love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only because 40 of those people observing might be deeply affected by what they're hearing me say. Okay? Right. So, so uh, yeah, I, I, do, I think this is a, sort of a realization that there are different approaches. We should support everybody. And you need to be willing to shift gears. So let's say that I'm arguing with the street preacher for 10 minutes and 40 people are affected by that. And then he walks away and I walk away, but we meet later in a coffee shop. I would definitely not use that same approach. I would start shifting into more of the Socratic SE approach. So you mentioned as well that your your technique has changed a bit over the years. You know, when you first started, when you first strapped on that GoPro, you weren't nearly as polished as you are now. When you say that you've gotten better, does that involve the kinds of questions you're asking? Does that involve the emotion that you're providing them? What what exactly do you mean by uh, by getting better, better over that right. period? It, that is such a subjective term. So better for some people might mean listening to what a person is telling you, not in, interrupting, and shaking their hand and wishing them a good day. Uh, for some p- other people... It might be having a talk with somebody, questioning what they believe, and seeing if there's anything that you can uncover that they don't know, and have them verbally say, hmm, that's a really good question, I don't know. Mm-hmm. For myself, better, I suppose, means, well, it's complicated because I'm filming them too, so there's a production element of it as well. So better might mean it was a nice sunny day, the cicadas weren't chirping ridiculously loud in the background. Um, somebody stopped and they were very animated and passionate about their belief and they just weren't mumbling and they didn't really care much about. So that's that's one aspect that I have to consider. But no, generally for myself, better is speaking a minimal amount of time. Like I think it would be optimal if, if I spoke 30% of the time and they spoke 70% of the time. So some sort of some sort of situation where I'm not talking as much, listening, and yes, forming good questions. Uh, even taking 10 seconds to say, okay, I want to ask you a question here, but just give me a second to kind of uh, you know, package it up here. Let me just really think about this question I want to ask you. And then just asking them a really good question that challenges them. And, uh, and, and ending on good terms, I, I think, is a success. Uh, so if somebody says, that was a really good talk, I've never thought about my belief in that way before. And Anthony, I can't even tell your position on this belief. Hmm. That is huge. That's a win for me because I want to maintain that, that sense of neutrality and encourage that sense of wonder in a person when they're thinking about their belief. In having these conversations with believers over the past five years, has your view changed about people who believe? Did anything surprise you? Did you think about believers in a different way before you started doing it than you do now? Generally speaking, I do think that believers are, I think they weight evidence differently for one thing. So I think possibly the more skeptical you are, the more likely you might be an atheist. That doesn't necessarily hold because there are a lot of atheists who are not skeptical. Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes to believing things are true because this thing happened or I read this in a book, it does seem that believers generally uh, are more willing to believe things than maybe a skeptic would. 
So for example, you know, I was looking for my car keys. I couldn't find them. I said a prayer and lo and behold, I discovered them. I think there are a certain subset of our population that would not hesitate for a second to be confident that that was their God that helped them. But I do think that there are people who are, I think their brains are just differently perhaps where they may say, now, was that the prayer that did it? Or did I just run out of, out of options and I just eventually discovered it here? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's probably one thing that I've, at least I, I'm, I'm wondering more and more is, are we just different people? And the other aspect of that is uh, that this idea of comfort, that these beliefs that we can hold help us cope, help us deal th- through the difficulties of life and, and the, the, the potential fear of there not being a life after we die. Uh, these beliefs can give people answers to the questions they have. And some people are fine with that, even though those answers may not be right. They may not be accurate. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of personality that comes into this. And, and maybe that's just why, as a kid, I questioned it. I doubted it. And maybe other other people in my family didn't question it as much. I don't really know. <laughs> that's a very good question. Mm-hmm. But it is something that I think about quite a bit. Now, when these believers talk about how they use their religious belief um, in, in God or the supernatural to cope with the difficulties in life. And they ask you, how do you do that without religious belief? How do you respond? Well, typically, I will try to ask them how they think a person without this belief could, could uh, deal with it. Do you know of anybody? Most people know of an atheist, especially if they're 30 or younger, mm-hmm. where they might know or have neighbors or friends or even family members that don't believe. So I might just ask, rather than telling them, I might more veer towards asking them how they think other people who don't believe this are coping. I'm going to be uploading a video today with a woman uh, where I asked her that exact same question. But at some point also, I think it could be rude for me to not answer their question. Mm-hmm. And I'll just tell them, I, I you know, I, I, Yes, I think it would be nice to see my loved ones again after I die, but I don't really know that that's the case. And I'd rather I'd rather be cautious on what I believe is true, and I'd rather have, you know, I'd like to have good reasons for the things that I'm believing that I think are true. And it's important for me. You know, it's better for me. It's more important for me to value truth than comfort. Uh, but I recognize that that's not the case for people. So, yeah, I think I'll just be kind of upfront with them if they push the issue and really want to know where my stand, uh, my stance is on those particular things. Yeah. And it also makes it much more precious and valuable. I mean, if this no is if this is all we have, it's it's far more valuable than if we're going to go off somewhere else and experience more. Um, it really does focus your your energy on how can you make the best life in the here and now as possible. Yes. In fact, people ask me, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want, do you want there to be a God? Mm-hmm. I've, ha- I've had people ask me that and I, I've really thought about it and I don't like I, I, and I understand that people will say, ah, well, that's why you, you're not believing is because you don't want there to be a God. But no, that's really not the case. I'm not believing because there doesn't seem to be evidence for a God. But also I wouldn't want many of these gods that I hear about to be, to exist. And, you know, if if things work in the way that their holy books explain that they work, that would be a very, very sad thing. 
Uh, that, that would cheapen this life that I think that I have. That would cheapen my outlook. That would cheapen everything for myself. So um, I think it would be very sad if we one day discovered that there was a God. I would accept it, of course. Like I want to believe true things. If that's true, I want to believe it. I want to hear about it. And I will come to accept it. But yes, I, I do think that that would greatly cheapen everything. So you talked about how your son, when he was three or four years old, said that he was Jewish because he was going to a Jewish daycare. Is your son still Jewish? As far as I know, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, one thing that I, I, I kind of joke around is that I want to indoctrinate my kids into skepticism and nothing else. Mm-hmm. I want them to question even what we tell them. Uh, so I, I really don't like a, even assigning labels to my child, my kids, even though they're 15 and a half and 13. Um, I think if you were to ask them, they could probably tell you where they where they stand on these things. They would probably identify themselves as a non-believer. Um, we've had some interesting talks where I think one day at the dinner table we were talking about prayer. Like prayer came up, and why do people pray? And what do they think is happening? And my son disclosed that he prayed once. He wanted to he wanted to test it and see if it worked. And uh, somebody at the table asked how he would be able to tell if it did work. So we had this wonderful discussion about testing and and uh, how would we know? And if we can't know, should we believe it? So uh, there's a lot of questioning that happens as opposed to asserting that this is true and you damn well better believe it. And I would much rather have the former than the latter. I mean, that's the thing I think more people need to do, I think we all need to do that, is talking through your beliefs, talking through why you think the way that you do. Because so many times, it seems like we're just kind of running on autopilot, just kind of going with it, and not sitting back and reflecting and thinking, well, why do I believe this? Why do I think this particular way? Or why do I think this particular thing? Uh, We just kind of go with it. And so one of the things I love about the work that you're doing is you're really helping people, kind of guiding people through kind of to take a step back and think, why do I, why do I think this? And kind of get back to the core of where they're coming from. It's almost like talk therapy in a way. It almost is therapy. And yeah, there's something really wonderful about making sure that you understand the definition of words before you even begin to have the discussion, before you even really get into it. Because you might find that once you understand how a person is using a particular word, that you may actually agree with them on it. Uh, and yes, it is it is really rewarding to see people learning about street epistemology and watching videos that myself and other people are uploading and engaging with folks. And in fact, I've had talks with people on the trail where they were so enamored with the conversation and the types of questions that I was asking. And there was one guy recently who said, I'm gonna I'm gonna start asking my friend. I've got a friend who's a Jehovah's Witness and he wants me to become one. And I think I'm gonna start asking him, like, how do you know that this is true? And and why do you think that? So that was so encouraging to hear one of my conversation partners, who I actually had just finished using the, the method on, was so enthralled with it that he wanted to use it with a friend of his and learn more about the, the method. It was so cool. You mentioned uh, even the definitions of words uh, being really important. And I can't tell you the number of times people don't even understand the word atheist. 
Um, even people who are atheists. I mean, I've had so many people who are atheists who will say, oh, I, I, I'm not an atheist. Well, do you believe in God? No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so many times. There's a Christian apologist who is preparing a video. I, I like to stay, I, I like, I like, I like to stay pretty tied in with the street preacher community and the different various apologetics communities that are out there. Because uh, I find them interesting, and I find their reaction to street epistemology extremely interesting. But um, there was one fellow who was – he's preparing to give a video lecture or something where he's interviewing all these former atheists who are now Christian, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, my suggestion to him was please, at the very start, ask them what their definition of atheist is before you get into the conversation. Because I think it would be quite revealing to hear what people think that word means. I've had a lot of former, I've, I've had a lot of believers define atheist as a person who has no morals or a person who is bad. Uh, back when I had my addiction to pornography, I was an atheist. So they, they, uh, they associate all these negative things with that word when they completely don't understand the only thing that it's saying. The other thing too is that I've noticed is that there are people who are watching these examples on YouTube or you know reading your book or all sorts of different ways that theists are stumbling across atheist content. Mm-hmm. And when they discover this street epistemology stuff, it's a different it's a different approach. It's a friendlier approach. And I think it might be easier for some people to look at that and say, now that I can relate to that is the type of atheist that I want to be. I want to be the respectful person who challenges these claims, but I want to do it in a way where we're still friends at the end of it. So I think street epistemology offers so much, including a different avenue for people who are on the fence about their non-belief, and they could possibly envision themselves wearing a different hat than they might normally see. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.